This is David Tarkington. Thank you for downloading this sermon. For more information about our church, First Baptist Church of Orange Park, and our network, the First Family Network, go to firstfam.org. You can check out my site at davidtarkington.com. When you think of the word surprise, or the definition of the word surprised, what comes to your mind? What do you think of? Unexpected. Marvin, that's the number one response I got. I got it from, Jay, uh, <laughs> I got it from Jacob's son, Caleb, yesterday. Uh, that was his definition. I said, that's probably as close to surprise as you can get. Several years ago, I was uh, on staff at a church in Pensacola, Florida, and it happened about toward the end of August, well, the very end of August, that it was my birthday, and it happened to be a Wednesday, and I was so focused on the youth services that we were about to have that night, and I was focused on the message and what's got to get ready and all this kind of stuff, making this happen. And our youth room uh, seated about 1,100 because we had the former worship facility, which is what this church has done. The youth are in the former worship facility here at first. And so our former youth facility, I mean our former worship facility was, was uh, called Passmore Hall after Jerry Passmore. And, uh, and Jerry's still alive, so it... Uh, my high school pastor came, came rushing into my office and he said, uh, something, there's, there's smoke in the youth room. And I grabbed very quickly, uh, I grabbed my Bible, why I don't know, but I, I went running into the youth room and underneath the balcony, which was lower than this, uh, there was a foyer through the center door and there were classrooms and we could pull those sliding dividers that hung from the ceiling on both sides. On the far side, as I entered the door at the back, I looked across and there was smoke coming out from underneath one of those areas. And I ran as fast as I could and then turned left in the center door and went out in the lobby and took the spine of this Bible, it was this one, smashed it through the glass of the fire extinguisher, shards of glass in the spine, it took me months to get it all out, grabbed the fire extinguisher, came running back out, ran down and turned left into that classroom to see what was on fire, to see four firemen and a birthday cake. <laughs> and a smoke machine generating fake smoke. <laughs> surprise was not the thing I was feeling at that moment. <laughs> was I surprised? Yes, followed quickly by infuriating at my high school pastor who had set this up. He thought it would be you know, cute to surprise me and all the kids going, hey, and I'm going, I'm thinking the building's burning and you're throwing a birthday party. <laughs> I was expecting one thing and you delivered something else entirely. Surprises come in a variety of forms. Sometimes we are surprised when we're doing our taxes and, and if you're using TurboTax, it, you've got the ESPN ticker at the top telling you how much you owe. And you get to the very end thinking that you're going to get money back and all of a sudden you owe money. Or you think you're going to owe money and you get to the end you find you're, it's, the surprise works. It can go either way. Sometimes, you know, you don't take good care of your teeth. You go to the dentist and he surprises you with the fact that you've got a filling that you're going to need. You've got a cavity. And, we'll, and yet our actions did not lead up. And, you know, our actions said that we didn't anticipate that poor hygiene in our mouth was not an important... It just didn't match. Surprises come in a variety of forms and fashions. And Jesus talks today about when he's sharing with the disciples how you don't want to be caught surprised by the second coming. And we find that today in Matthew's Gospel, 
24th chapter, beginning in verse 36. Our pastor left off last week in verse 35, and we will pick up today in verse 36. Now concerning that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven, and hang on to this phrase, nor the Son, except the Father only. As the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. For in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day Noah boarded the ark. They didn't know until the flood came and swept them all away. So this is the way the coming of the Son of Man will be. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. Therefore, and you always have to ask yourself why that word is therefore. What that word is therefore. Therefore, based on everything I've said up to this point, therefore... Be alert, since you don't know what day your Lord is coming. But know this, if the homeowner had known what time the thief was coming, he would have stayed alert and not let his house be broken into. <coughs> Excuse me. This is why you must also be ready, because the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then, he poses the question and then answers it, who then is a faithful and sensible slave whom his master has put in charge of his household to give him food at the proper time? That slave whose master finds him working when he comes will be rewarded. I assure you, he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. But if that wicked slave says in his heart, my master is delayed and starts to beat his fellow slaves and eats and drinks with drunkards, that slave's master will come on a day he does not expect and an hour he does not know. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Heavenly Father, this is a hard word today. This is a message to the church today to wake up. And as unworthy as this messenger is to deliver this word, may you take this word by your Holy Spirit's power and speak into our heart its application for this moment. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. There are various passages in the New Testament referring to the second coming of Christ. There, are, there is this passage that we found in Matthew 24. There is Mark 13. There is Luke 17 and 21. First and second Thessalonians. And in Hebrews. And in Revelation. But we find four things from those passages in talking about the second coming of Christ. And, and these four things are one. Number one, the exact time of the event is unknown. But the event will happen. Number two, we can know the general time. Because we're given signs to look for when the second coming is about to happen. And, and we begin to look for those signs and, and we say, is this it? Is this it? We're, we're not sure exactly what those, uh, how to identify them. But we, but we know that it's, it's coming. Number three, it will occur suddenly and unexpectedly. Number four. We must prayerfully be ready and faithful to serving in the kingdom in preparation for when that hour comes. Now let me point out, 
that nowhere in the New Testament, nowhere in Scripture do we find the term second coming. In Hebrews, we do find when Christ comes a second time, but that's as close as we get to it. That is a term that we have applied to, to the story that Christ is saying, I'm, I'm coming. The word used in the original Greek is parousia. And parousia is, is a term used as royalty is coming. Here's the picture, here's the scene, here's the thing that the disciples, I'm, I know, and if I apply the humanistic part of this to who these guys are, that they're probably going, huh, at each other. Christ is saying, when I come, and he uses the term of royalty, and I picture the disciples going, isn't he here now? And Christ is saying, when I come, and yet he's already with them, and surely this was a little puzzling to them. Christ is already knowing, hey, the, the eventuality of this is, is I will come again. I came this time. And you remember that we're not to the point where the disciples yet have said, uh, oh, no, 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 you can't be crucified. Peter hasn't done his valiant effort to stop this process. And so there, Jesus is saying, when I come, when I come as royalty, and indeed, there will be a major difference between he, the time he came the first time and the time he comes again. Because when he comes again, indeed, he will be royalty. And the Bible says, believer and non-believer alike, every knee will bow before that royalty when he comes. In verse 36, we find Jesus saying, the angels in heaven, nor the sun. And in some early manuscripts, nor the sun is not in there. I got to look at it and I thought, why? Some biblical scholars say they think that some of the early writers just could not fathom that Jesus himself would not know when he's coming back. And so they may have omitted nor the sun. But apparently, and I, I believe with all my heart that Jesus was probably saying, nor the Son. The same Messiah who in the garden knew the plan for his own life, knew the plan that he was to sacrifice his life and knew how it would go. The same Savior who said, Father, if this could pass for me, let, it, let, let, it, let us figure out a different way, but nevertheless thy will. The same Savior who said, if there could be another way, would have said, I don't even know. But at one day, the Father's going to go, enough. And he's going to look at the Son and he says, go get him. Bring my people home. The same Savior would have acknowledged that he didn't even know when it would happen in subservience to the Father because he, he said, nevertheless, Father, not my will, but your will be done. He also says, we'll be like the days of Noah. This is an idiom, I-D-I-O-M, that Jesus uses, which is a gives an illustration of something in the story that they already knew just like the days of Noah people were getting up they were going to work they were going about they were planning for their future they were marrying they were giving in marriage they were doing everything like they had eternity to go until Noah shut the ark and when Noah shut the ark it all stopped Tomorrow we will get up and we will go about our day. I will get up earlier tomorrow and head to Maple Street Biscuit Company for a small group of us who will discuss this morning's message. And I will get up more than likely not expecting Christ to come back that day. And Jesus has said, you better get up every morning saying, could it be today? Could it be 
today. We look down here, just like in the days of Noah. And then in verse 40 and 41, he says, One will be taken, one will be left. When you hear the term, one will be taken, taken where? Taken where? What would you guess? Heaven? Okay. Here's something interesting when I begin to dig into this passage. We assume, and I always have, well, one will be taken straight to heaven. But if you look at that, and you look at what things are supposed to happen before the rapture takes place, you go, wait a minute. Instantly, bam, rapture happens? When we're told, in a, it flies in the face of our understanding of this. However, Jesus is not giving us a timeline here. He's just saying, when it happens, one will be taken, one will be left. We guess, we assume, I have always guessed, well, yeah, that one taken will be going to heaven. But as in the days of Noah, Noah was left and everyone else was taken. That's one of those, hmm. Often when I begin to look at something like this, I will find biblical scholars that will argue one way or the other. They will be opposed. But here's one of the few times where I find they all agreed, we don't know which one this is. I went, really? We don't know whether the judged will be taken or the judged will be left. But we can get really focused on the minutia of this passage and forget the fact that Jesus is saying, get ready. No matter how it happens. Don't concern yourself too much in the minutiae of exactly what is going to happen and how it happens. We can get distracted by it. When I say with great urgency, get ready. Some of us in this room will take that message and we'll put it on our little phone and we'll swipe it and drop it in the delete box just like we do junk email because that's preacher talk, that's what you say, that's what you guys say, get ready. It hasn't happened for a long time and it probably won't happen today and it probably won't happen tomorrow and when you say it probably won't, then you just said that you know better than God knows and Jesus is saying you better get ready every day because when it happens, it's going to catch you unexpectedly and you will be ill-prepared. And my question is, if he walked through that back door right now, how many of you would look, realize who it was, and say, oh God, I am in bad shape. It is too late for me. Do you care enough for your family to teach them the things of the faith? Do you, rec do you require them to be active in the family of faith? Were Christ to come right now, would you be ready? On December 7th, 1941, at 7.55 a.m. Hawaii time, Pearl Harbor Navy Base, Hawaii, was attacked by Japanese torpedo and bomber planes. The sneak attack sparked outrage in, in America and across the world. 2,402 men were killed that day and 1,282 were wounding. The ensuing war that resulted as a result of that attack resulted in 111,000 plus dead or missing and another 253,000 plus wounded. We knew tensions were bad. We had cut all ties and an embargo with Japan. We knew that they had done, performed military action on a variety of fronts. We knew the potential that Japan had for war. 
in a declassified memo, it was discovered that three days before December 7, 1941, attack on Pearl Harbor, President Roosevelt was warned in a memo from naval intelligence that Tokyo's military and spy network was focused on Hawaii. It was a reminder of FDR's failure to act on a basket load of clues and hints that they were going to get attacked. I do not presume his innocence or his guilt, but I, I just... I would not want to be president of the United States at any given time. I don't like the idea of half the country hating me, whoever it is. But surely, as he got the warning, he felt this. Okay, it might happen, but no time soon. It might happen, but no time soon. And so, America was ill-prepared. That was in the last generation. In this generation, on September 11, 2001, there were a series of four coordinated terrorist attacks by the Islamic terrorist group Al-Qaeda against the United States. The attacks killed 2,996 people, which, by the way, following that, hundreds more died as a result of toxic ingestion of, of things that you should not have breathed. 6,000 were wounded. It caused over $10 billion in damage in our infrastructure. And despite the warnings that Osama bin Laden was going to attack American soil, then-President Bush ignored the warnings, not believing it would actually occur, and America was not ready. We have a history of seeing the clues and ignoring the outcome. And I'm not talking about two men who were presidents. I'm talking about, about a nation. I'm talking about a people. I'm talking about those of us within the walls of this building right now. We have a history of not heeding the warnings. We will be better prepared for the next hurricane than we are for the second coming of Christ. This whole week, we have, I mean, they have been big emphasis. Ace Hardware, no, they didn't pay me to say that. Ace Hardware and one of our local TV ch channels are giving discounts, telling you this is what you need to get ready. We have bought insurance for our, for our dwelling. We've got fire insurance. We've got theft insurance. We, we have completely covered our house in case, in case something was to happen. And sometimes our house and our cars are more prepared for something tragic to happen than we are in our spiritual lives prepared for the second coming of Christ, which will be a tragedy for many. It'll be a tragedy for many. Uh, one of my friends posted this this week, and I thought, oh, this just kind of fits in here. This is a, a quote by John MacArthur. And he says, Satan continues his efforts to make sin less offensive, heaven less appealing, hell less horrific, and the gospel less urgent. And we're not ready. We have a history of seeing the signs and ignoring the outcome. We have become optimistic that Christ will return. We talk about it. We'll preach about it. Every one of you, I said, do you believe Christ will return? And you would say, amen, yes, I do. But we don't act like it. Or we don't act like it could be today. And if we don't expect him today, then it could be today. And Jesus in the first passage of this says, you better be ready. In the second passage, he says, this, when I come back, is the way I ought to catch you when I come back. 
Our expectations of what it means to follow Christ often do not meet up to the minimum standards of what a Christ follower actually does. You've heard me say this before, and I'll say it again. I do not call myself a Christian. A Christian was an insult hurled at the early Christ followers, and it meant, oh, you're just a little Christ, and it was something that was done to make fun of them. A Christian is a noun. I tell people I'm a Christ follower. I have had some people ask me one time, are you a Christian? I said, no, I'm not. I said, I'm a Christ follower. I said, under the name of Christian, there's been a lot of Terrible things done on this planet. I said, I'm a Christ follower. Under the name of Christian, the churches have not really reached out into the community. They have not really tried to take as many people with them when Christ surprises us and comes back as they could. And, and so I'm a Christ follower. I try to follow what he tells me to do. And that denotes action. That means something I do. Our expectations of what it means to follow Christ does not always meet our behavior. There's a tour company called Thomas Cook Vacations, and they book trips for people. They're, they're a travel agency. They book trips and handle all the accommodations and everything. Uh, you just show up at the airport with your tickets, and you follow their itinerary as you have told them, this is what we want, and this is what we expect. And so Thomas Cook tries to deliver on what these people expect. And it's interesting what some people who travel overseas expect and what they get. Here are some of their actual complaints from former customers or clients, okay? Number one, on my holiday in India, I was disgusted to find that almost every restaurant served curry. I don't like spicy food. Then you should have stayed home. Number two, we went on holiday to Spain and had a problem with the taxi drivers as they were all Spanish. Number three, the beach was too sandy. We had to clean everything when we returned to our room. I guess they needed to pave down to the water, okay? It's lazy of the local shopkeepers in Puerto Vallarta to close in the afternoons. I often needed to, bring, to buy things during siesta time. This should be banned. Number five, no one told us there would be fish in the water. The children were scared. Number six, although the brochure said that there was a fully equipped kitchen, there was no egg slicer in the drawer. Number seven, failed geography. It took us nine hours to fly home from Jamaica to England. It took the Americans only three hours to get home. This seems so unfair. <laughs> oh, yeah? You all see how long it takes us to come visit you. When we were in Spain, there were too many Spanish people there. The receptionist spoke Spanish. The food was Spanish. No one told us there'd be so many foreigners. <laughs> Hello, sweetheart. You're the foreigner. Number nine, I was bitten by a mosquito. The travel brochure did not mention mosquitoes. Now, we will comically laugh at the unrealistic expectations of travelers visiting a foreign country. And yet it doesn't get very funny when we have certain expectations that tomorrow will be there when indeed it may not. Someone from the 8 o'clock service came up to me and he said, you didn't even address those that are just taken from this life prematurely. And I said, exactly. I said, that's a whole other sermon. Sometimes it's not when Christ will come, it's sometimes <laughs> your time is up. And you will be called out individually as your life will end in this journey as we know it. 
We in Western culture have developed a comfortable faith that fits our expectations. If there's a biblical command that we're not comfortable with, it's easier to blow it off saying, well, I don't believe that applies to today, or what psychologists call self-talk and imagery. I actually have a book entitled that where we convince ourselves that we don't have to do that in order to not have to follow it. Or... If the sermon is too direct, it's easier to complain about the messenger than deal with the truth presented. If the message is boring or dull or not entertaining, we discount its content. When I was in seminary, I was an older student in seminary. I was 34 when I started seminary. And uh, I was in class with guys who were in their, still in their 20s. And I took a counseling course by one of the counseling professors. And he lectured in a monotone. Just... And I looked around me, and students were like, you know, like some of you are now. Uh, <laughs> could not stay awake. And they would complain to me about how dry and boring he was. And I would look at them saying, are you hearing what he's saying? I've got four pages of notes. You've got three sentences. If you could hear the value in what's happening, and because of my life experience, I saw as he would speak, I would, oh, man, this is good. I don't care how you're delivering it. This is good. i got to get this down, not for the test. There were no tests in that class. We had to accomplish certain tasks in that class in order we, we contracted for an A, a B, or a C. If you wanted to go all the way, which I did, it's an A. It's about another $160 worth of certifications that I had to get to get, get to that point. But these students say, oh, this is too boring. And so they discount what he's saying because of the way he's saying it. And sometimes you can hear a phenomenal truth. And if we're not entertained or our ears not tickled, then we discount what's said. When in fact, the value in what's said is deep. I got out of bed this morning as I do most mornings and I got up and took a shower when I get out of the shower oftentimes my wife has gotten up and she has made the bed and uh, she has not only made the bed and put our two pillows where they go and covered them so nobody could see them but she has put a whole bunch of pillows on there that we don't use now why they call that the master suite I don't know because it is definitely the queen's abode. <laughs> and so we have all these pillows that will be on, and, and I, it, 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 it's, a, it's a lady thing, and I would not change that part of that. And it, probably, I'll probably get up in the morning, there'll be no pillows on the bed, including mine. Uh, <laughs> but we want, we put all those pillows there. This afternoon, after having preached four times this weekend, I will probably lay down on the bed and watch television and relax. And I will begin to remove some of those pillows because I want to get down to the one I really want. And we do that in our faith walk. We remove things that are just too hard or don't make, don't make us comfortable. But you need to understand, my brothers and sisters in Christ, God calls us to a walk that is not comfortable. He did not cause us, He did not call us, He did not send us to be comfortable in our faith. There are Christians around this world who understands that, and America has forgotten that. 
because we want the temperature just right, we want the cushions just right, we want, and, and as a result, we want our faith to be comfortable. Don't call me to something that will cause me to have to go on a mission trip. Don't challenge me in something that will cause me to make amends with my next-door neighbor. Don't cause me to, to be the godly leader in my family. Don't call me to something that's outside my comfort zone. Well, there's very little of what Christ calls us to do that's inside our comfort zone. Did you know that? Very little. Very little. Back to our passage, after telling the followers of Christ to be ready, beginning in verse 45, he begins to tell them how to be ready. And he says, He who, who then is faithful and sensible slave, whom his master has put in charge of the household to give food at the proper time, that slave whose master finds him working when he comes will be rewarded. I assure you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that wicked slave says in his heart, My master is delayed and starts to beat his fellow slaves and eats and drinks with drunkards, that slave's master will come on a day he does not expect and an hour he does not know. He will cut him to pieces and assign him to a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is an expanded version or a restating of what Jesus talked about when he talked about the fig tree that does not bear fruit. What do you do to it? You cut it down. If you're not bearing fruit, if you're not working in the kingdom, you'll be cut down. When the master returns, will you be busy working at what he left us to do when he was here the first time? The master, obviously a reference to himself, has gone away and left responsibilities. And, and because he has tarried on returning, as Christ has tarried on returning, and we have had generation after generation who has lived and died, then we guess, well, it, it will probably won't be in my generation, so I don't have to necessarily be ready. When he doesn't return for a while, some of the servants begin to abuse their positions and there's a whole lot of, hey, a warning here to pastors and ministers and staff people who abuse their position of power. But there's also a huge challenge to those of us who are just walking in the faith, thinking that they falsely have plenty of time. But Jesus tells us the master will return. And when he does, there'll be a day of reckoning. Those who were faithful will be given all that there is. Those who are unfaithful will be punished. And it's uncertain what that will be cut in many pieces will be. I know what it meant for my dad to verbally cut me in pieces when I was 10, 11, 12, 13 years old. And I don't know if that's what this means. It won't be just be verbal. I do know that Jesus had phrases that were used indicative of the time and the and and the genre that he's speaking to that had meaning at that day that may not have that same meaning today. So whatever it is, I don't want to know what that's like. Jesus uses idioms and teaching that, that that audience would know that perhaps we would not. But when Jesus returns, the question is, will you be found faithful working in the kingdom or spectating and complaining and anywhere but involved? We create a comfortable faith that fits our expectations. But Jesus calls us to be uncomfortable he calls us to leave our comfort zone we find in in scripture that he calls us to tithe he says you're to give 10 percent of what you have been given and i honestly i got a few wrinkled brows when i said this at 9 15 sometimes i look at this and i look at the principle of this and i think this tithe is probably not for the church it's for the giver because by giving a tithe, you acknowledge that none of this that you have is yours. God has given you the ability, the health, the knowledge, all that you have, and all he says is to acknowledge that I gave it to you, give 10% of it back. Do you trust me? But that's just too hard. 
You don't understand. I've got a car payment. I've got a house payment. I've got a boat payment. I've got, we, there, you just don't understand. God, don't tell me. Don't shoot the messenger. Tithe. I know it's hard. It must be hard. That's why less than 20% of us in this room give a tithe. It must be hard. So since it says to tithe and that's hard, we're just, now that doesn't belong in the Bible, so we'll just take that out. The Bible tells us that we are to faithfully teach our children the things of the faith. Deuteronomy 6. The church is not the primary discipler of your kids. You have heard that from this pulpit. You have heard it. You have read it. You have seen it. But that's just too hard. You don't understand. When I get home from a baseball game with our kids, I, we're just too tired to talk about God. Or, I, I love this one, I just don't know enough. I just don't know enough. I, ca I can't teach my children. Besides, that's what the church is for. That's what we hired you for. No. My calling is to equip the saints, guess who that is, to do ministry. Not to do ministry for you. That's just too hard. I don't think we can do that one. The Bible says to serve one another, to serve the body of Christ. God has equipped and given you spiritual gifts that are to be used to growing the kingdom and serving one another in the faith. It's like the fertilizer of the faith that grows this tree. I've been here five years and we haven't, we haven't taught a, a discipleship class on discovering your spiritual gifts. Maybe it's time we do that. That'd be a good one to teach this summer. But that's just hard. You know, I, I just... I know I'm getting, and by the way, it's one of those things, if you don't use it, yeah, you do. That's hard. I can't do that one. The Bible says, James 5, to confess your sins one to another. Man, we have a difficult time because the only one that points out our sins is our wives, and we'll defend ourselves even when she points them out. We have a hard time admitting when we have done wrong, or we'll, or we'll take that little old phrase that came in, oh, my bad. Yeah, that's real brokenness. The Bible calls us to be broken about our sins and to confess our sins one to another. But that's just hard to do. You don't understand. If I, if I did that, then people would know what I struggled with. Well, guess what? <laughs> you confess it to one of your friends and they'll go, oh, I'd struggle with the same thing. So we're not going to confess our sin. We're just going to get rid of that one. The Bible says to spend time in the Word. You want to know how to be a discipler in your house? More is caught than taught. Begin by being on your face with the Word of God and let your children begin to see that in your life i'm not going to i'm not going to ask all the all the kids in here under 16 years of age how many have how many times have you seen your daddy in his in the bible studying on his own i don't want to embarrass you and don't want to call anybody out but that's just day that's hard you, you don't understand i i work a long job we can't do that we can't spend time in the word now, if you are more offended that I tore pages out of a Bible than you are the fact that we're not doing the things that I talked about. By the way, this is a blank book. <laughs> Even I have more respect for God's Word than that. It has one page of Scripture, and it's Genesis 1, 1 through 4. It's a book given to me by a ministry called One Verse, trying to get people to sponsor a verse translated in a foreign language somewhere around the world and i have two of these so i thought i would use that this morning if you're more concerned that you thought i was tearing pages out of a bible than you are that we're not doing these things 
then therein may lie the problem. The Bible teaches us to be busy about doing the things of the faith. Somehow we have to beg to get workers. I literally told one of our staff members that answers to me, I said, you know, maybe it's the fact that we're coming up with this vision of where our church needs to go and these events that we need to do, but the church is voting that they don't want to do that when they vote not to support it, either financially or in person. We're doing vacation Bible school tomorrow morning. We're still in need of a first or second grade lead teacher. Everything's set up. It's already there. We, had, we lost one at the last moment. I do a summer Bible college. been doing it for years. It's, uh, this year, it'll be 6th, 7th, and 8th grade. They don't meet in here. They meet over in the youth building. I've got two lady teachers to teach our girls, and I have not one man who has got the time or the ability to. I understand we all work, but I don't have any guys, and we start a, a week from tomorrow. Maybe we're voting that we don't want to do these things. I don't know. Maybe we're too ambitious. But the Bible did tell us to raise a generation of disciples. We have a work day around here, and there will be about 25, 30 people out of all of our congregation of hundreds that will show up and help make our campus prettier. We beg people to try to launch a campus, and we're doing pretty good on taking up, getting snacks for VBS. Thank you very much. That looks really good. And you, and you are giving church. I don't want to sound really, really negative. But there are too many who are spectators and not working in the kingdom. Jesus says, who then is faithful and sensible? And an unusual invitation, my question to you today is how will you respond to what you've heard from the word today? What needs to change? What needs to be confessed? Do you know the Christ who gave these instructions? Are you, are you falsely sitting back saying, we got plenty of time? Because we will be surprised unexpectedly when he steps out and we're not ready. We will be surprised unexpectedly when either in a car or declared in a, in a disease or, or something takes our life even prematurely. I wake up every morning, look at the news to see how many of them stepped into eternity last night and in, in the Jacksonville area. And they did. They were going through their day not expecting that had happened, and then all of a sudden they found themselves in eternity. Jesus says, who then is faithful and sensible? Are you comfortable in your faith, or is God calling you to a life of discomfort? And the question is, no, is, is not a question. God is calling you to a life that's not comfortable. It's out of your comfort zone. It will call, it will demand time. It will demand, demand resources. It will demand a portion of your income. He is calling you to something that is hard to do. If this was easy, there'd be a whole lot more people doing it. And so for the invitation this morning, my question is, what needs to change? What needs to get fixed? What needs to get confessed? You may need to come and just kneel. We have this kneeling rail all the way around that's used very little but you may need to just come and pray. I'm going to be here. Some of our counselors will be here. We would love to talk to you about what needs to happen and pray with you and over you and challenge you, but I'm telling you, I'm going to try to get you to find someone with skin on who can hold you accountable to what you've heard today.
The two of you can journey this. God never launched us out into this by ourselves. That's why he called us together as a family of faith to journey this together. But what is your response? Not my words. What is your response to God's word today in your life? Father God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, I I pray that you would move about the hearts of everyone in this room, including this humble preacher that probably just failed miserably at conveying this just like you would like to. So therefore, I trust in the Holy Spirit to convey its meaning and purpose and application in our lives today. Challenge us, God. There is not a thing wrong with this church that a great revival wouldn't go a long way in repairing. Help us to know the value of confessing. Help us to know the value of serving. Help us to know the value of of anticipating every day your return in our lives so that we are found as a faithful servant. Lead us through this time of decision-making, both in the pew and in this altar up front. Because an altar is not an altar until we make it one when we bow. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing. If God has moved on your heart to make a decision this morning that we can pray with you or for you about, you step out and you step out now. Jesus is calling. Don't think for a moment that I walk into this room with any sense of excitement over what I get to do as much as fear about what I'm about to do. And it's an honor to be asked to speak to you, and I I don't take that lightly. And I'm grateful, and thank you for your attentiveness today. Thank you for being here. Thank you for not leaving when you saw who it was that was preaching. And it's good to be a part of the family of faith. Amen. We are going to uh, dismiss you. I will be down front. Some of our counselors will be here. I believe God wants to do something in this room, and he wants to do it now because he always does. Don't walk out that door with doubts or questions about what you should have done before you walked out that door. And if you do walk out that door, you can turn around and come back in. We'll be here. Father God, thank you for this day, for your word, the truth of your word, and the accuracy 
of those things which will happen. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Have a blessed Sunday.